If you are one of the many people suffering from diabetes, you may have questions about how best to manage it, how to live a healthier lifestyle, or possibly prevent it in the first place. Welcome to Say Yes to Good Health with Memorial Hospital. I'm Melanie Cole, and I invite you to join us as we discuss reducing your risk for developing prediabetes and diabetes. Joining us today is Pam Hartzell. She's a certified diabetes care and education specialist at Memorial Hospital in the Memorial Hospital Health and Wellness Center. Pam, I'm so glad to have you join us today. And this is such an important topic as we're seeing diabetes across the age range. It used to be called adult onset. Now we see juvenile diabetes, older people, younger people. It's really, it's crossing all those barriers. What have you been seeing in the area about diabetes lately, the prevalence. Tell us a little bit about what it is. Definitely, we do have an epidemic of diabetes. Diabetes is on the rise, not only in uh, adults, but in younger ages as well. And even younger ages are getting the adult form of diabetes. So tell us a little bit about what it is, because people don't really understand. They hear about this and they don't know what it means or what's going on or how the pancreas is involved. Tell us what it is. Okay. Well, diabetes actually kind of starts with what we call pre-diabetes, used to be called borderline diabetes. And that's where the glucose, or also termed blood sugar, is higher than normal. Pre-diabetes is when the glucose is higher than normal, but it's not high enough yet to be in the criteria range for diabetes. So with pre-diabetes, like a fasting blood sugar is between 100 and 120. 25. With diabetes, it's 126 and higher. And that's just where we're not getting our energy. It's stuck in the bloodstream and it's not going into the cells to give the body energy. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because what really does happen when we eat? Why do we need to understand insulin and how this all works and why the blood sugar really needs to be circulating because otherwise it causes problems? You know, there is a lot of confusion with the word insulin because everybody thinks about insulin as something that you inject and can be very scary and things like that. But insulin is really what we kind of term our helper hormone. It is a hormone that's made in the body, in the pancreas. And it's what we all use in order to get energy from our food. We eat food, it gets digested, but we have to have a certain amount of available insulin in our body in order to use the energy from food. Without a proper balance, what happens is that energy builds up in the bloodstream, gets to a certain level, and goes right out through the kidneys and out in the urine. So energy becomes wasted. So it's really just an interesting condition, but there are different types. And I think another thing that people don't really understand are the two different types. We hear type 1 and type 2, but type 1 is really not what we're discussing here today, right? So why don't you tell us the difference between these two? Correct. The difference 
in the types. I think part of that confusion comes with all the various terminology over the years. You mentioned juvenile diabetes earlier. Well, juvenile diabetes is kind of referring to type 1 diabetes, and that is the type of diabetes where the body stops making insulin, that helper hormone. So without that, glucose rises. And so someone with type 1 diabetes where their body stops making insulin, they have to have insulin therapy or take insulin injections or have the insulin pump in order to live, in order to function. With type 2 diabetes, the adult form of diabetes, or you mentioned earlier maturity onset, that is the type of diabetes that occurs. Not that the body is not making insulin, it's just not using it well. So it's somewhat unavailable. We call that insulin resistance. So With type 2 diabetes, the glucose or blood sugar goes up, but not for the same reason. It's just that the body's not using it very well. I like to liken it to opening the door. In type 1, really there is no insulin made. The pancreas has some damage. But in type 2, it's just not opening the door into those working muscles and where it really is needed. So tell us a little bit now, while we're talking about type 2, who's at risk? Is there a genetic component? Is it a result of sedentary lifestyle? And I mean, there's a whole lot that goes into this, but discuss a little bit about risk factors for us. Yes, risk factors for developing prediabetes in adult type 2 diabetes or just type 2 diabetes in general, there are. So having a family history, so genetics, so if somebody has a family history of diabetes, then they are at risk. If somebody has had gestational diabetes in pregnancy, we know they are also at risk and so is their offspring. Being overweight, if somebody is overweight, together with being physically inactive. Those two things in combination many times definitely increases the risk. And then just being 45 years of age and older, that increases the risk as well because as we age, insulin resistance occurs. Well, then tell us how we would know. Are there some signs and symptoms? How do we know if we have prediabetes or diabetes? And really, how do you diagnose it? That is kind of the tricky part as far as the signs and symptoms. Not everybody has symptoms or they have them but just aren't recognizing them because they're somewhat subtle. Symptoms of high blood glucose, fatigue. Sometimes people think, well, gosh, I'd stay up too late or, you know, I've got a hectic schedule, so why wouldn't I be tired? So it doesn't really catch your attention. Increased thirst and increase in urination, those two things can occur when the glucose is higher. And a lot of times, People with adult diabetes are also taking medications for blood pressure, and that medication increases thirst and increases urination, so that doesn't really catch anyone's attention. Increase in hunger, cravings in particular for carbohydrate-type foods can occur, and that again is because the body's not getting its energy, and so it's basically triggering the response. It's like saying, I need energy, I need energy, When it, and in fact, Glucose might be high, but the cells are not getting it. The other thing that can occur is reoccurring infections. People might have a urinary tract infection or for women, a yeast infection that's been treated but just keeps coming back. Fungal infections, especially seen in the toenails or even 
fingernails that change the appearance of the fingernails. They might become yellowed and thickened. Sinus infections that continue to reoccur. Sores or cuts that are very slow to heal. That's sometimes a little symptom that can catch someone's attention or the physicians for sure. So if we find out at our well visit or any of those symptoms that you mentioned and they take our blood sugar levels at those well visits, you know, as they take our blood work, Mm -hmm. what's the first thing that happens if somebody's blood sugars are high and the doctor says, you know, I think that you have prediabetes and then what happens? If they're seeing a higher than normal fasting blood sugar, uh, a lot of times they will follow up with an A1C, which is the hemoglobin A1C, the average glucose test for for seeing if that's elevated. So that's usually the first step is a repeat lab work, a little more specifically looking to see if the glucose is elevated. With diagnosing prediabetes and diabetes, they usually don't do it from the first lab test. It's usually with a follow-up lab. So then what? If it's determined that somebody does have, after they've done A1C and they have prediabetes or full-blown diabetes because maybe it didn't Mm get caught early enough, tell us a little bit about how diet and exercise impact diabetes management. What's the first thing? Because people all of a sudden, as you mentioned, insulin before, they assume, oh, now I'm going to have to go on insulin. But that is not the case, really, in many circumstances. So tell them what happens next. Really and truly, it's been proven over and over in studies and research, especially with type 2 diabetes, that there's a lot you can do with lifestyle. Losing weight by healthy eating and becoming more active can actually cut the risk of getting type 2 diabetes in half. These lifestyle measures uh, of weight loss and even just a 5 to 7% weight loss of body weight and then increasing the physical activity to about 150 minutes per week resulted in a 58% lower incidence of type 2 diabetes. Basically, they proved that lifestyle made a huge difference in prevention. So if somebody had prediabetes, they can actually prevent the progression to diabetes. But if somebody is diagnosed with diabetes, they can actually reverse into uh, normal levels of glucose. And sometimes they're started on medications and then go off the medications because of how the glucose improves with lifestyle. So it it just kind of depends on what the physician and provider is seeing in the numbers. But someone who has that diagnosis, we prefer them to be able to be referred to education specialists so that we can help with them learning what to do So having the knowledge and then also the tools and resources and support for maintaining that. Certainly great information. Tell the listeners, how do you work with patients? What do you do with them? How do you help them with diet and working on those complications, whether it's eye exams or checking themselves for wounds that don't heal or any of these things that we're going to be discussing? First, tell us how you work with them. What's it like? Well, first it starts with their provider's referral into our program. And so we just get together and we talk about some of the maybe challenges, but we individualize it for every person. And that really is key. There really is no one way canned approach to managing diabetes. There are some things that we know help, but really it needs to be individualized for the person, what they have going on, their type of diabetes, the 
medications they might be on. So we, we do uh, what we call an assessment. I'm an RN, uh, certified diabetes educator. So I do the nursing things and then I work with the dietitian and she does the nutrition part of things. So if you haven't already kind of gathered, it is a real team approach. The physician directs our team because they're sending our directed referral. And then the person with diabetes really is the center of it all, center of the team. They very, very much have a say in what goes on with their care. It is very person-centered. So we listen to what their needs are. We, in our assessment, kind of help identify some of those needs as well. And then we put it all together really with a plan that they can work on. It gives them a guideline. And as far as the nutrition end of things, the healthy foods meal plan, it's just a plan, a starting point. And all of that is basically a guideline that's been put together by all the entities so that they have something that's going to work for them. So that's such important information. And there are other comorbidities that go along with diabetes, puts you at risk for heart disease, high blood pressure, all of these things. Do you manage, as you mentioned, that multidisciplinary approach, do you manage those things as well if someone's obese and they have diabetes? Maybe you're keeping an eye on their blood pressure or heart disease risk. Tell us how how all of that comes into this picture. We really do. In the initial visit, we're looking at all of that, looking at the lab work that we have provided by their provider in the electronic medical record. Glucose certainly is a major part of that, but you're right, the comorbidities that can be increased is, is cardiovascular, is the heart type risks. So we're also looking at blood pressure, looking at the cholesterol, the lipids, the HDL, the good cholesterol, the LDL, all of that, and then helping people understand some of that. Some of it can be quite confusing. We don't get too technical and it's not a science class or anything like that, but just helping people understand, you know, what needs to improve along with the A1C and the fasting blood sugar. And, but you're very right. There are comorbidities. Also, some of the things we track and work with people are some of those health maintenance exams, the eye exam, foot exam, dental exams, making sure that people are able to then monitor and make sure that all those things are okay so that, you know, they're not having any of those complications that can occur with uncontrolled diabetes. So Pam, when people go to the pharmacy, they see all these glucose monitors on the shelves and they don't know whether they're supposed to be checking their glucose levels, their blood sugars. What are those monitors? Do we keep track of our blood sugar levels if someone has diabetes type 2? And if so, when? Do they do it before exercise or after, before they eat? Tell us about those monitors that we see. I am so glad you asked about that. There are a lot of meters and various monitors, sensor monitors out there, and it can be extremely confusing. And that's part of my expertise is to be able to help people sort that out. Believe me, not all meters and not all sensors are created equal. So I can kind of help them navigate that. As far as testing glucose, it gets prescribed by their healthcare providers. So it does require prescription if people are wanting their insurances, you know, for coverage of the testing supplies. And you do see them on the shelf, but if you just went and got one, 
went through the checkout, you'd be paying out of pocket. And actually, since 1997, when the Diabetes Care and Education Act was put into place, testing supplies for diabetes have been available to those with Medicare and those with commercial insurances and private insurances. Nowadays, we do have to have people, if they have commercial insurance, they do need to check with their insurance to see which ones of the meter systems are covered by their insurance. So that's kind of probably the first step I usually have people check on. But then I work with them with their systems and then help them know based on what their blood sugars are, based on what they're what they're seeing, their patterns of glucose to be, when would be the best time to check the blood sugar. But the monitoring the finger stick glucose meters that you see, that is, you know, a technology that's been around for several years now. And it does have a role in monitoring glucose along with the lab work, the fasting blood sugar, the A1C, hemoglobin A1C, that's done usually every three months or six months, depending on what they're seeing. But even all of that that we have has been somewhat limiting because The finger stick glucose gives you the value of the level of the glucose in that point in time. So if somebody's been measuring glucose, let's just say four times a day even before each meal and bedtime, they know the information for those particular times. But as you know, as the day goes on, much like blood pressure, glucose fluctuates. It can rise and fall and it can rise and fall quickly or slowly. And all of that makes a difference of how someone feels. So the newer technology now is called the continuous glucose monitoring with the different sensor systems. And those really help really and truly connect the dots. So you can see continuously from midnight to midnight, daytime, nighttime, what the glucose is doing, if it's rising or falling and how fast. And now you can even predict if it's falling quickly and within, you know, within 20 minutes, if you're going to be at a low glucose hypoglycemia level where you would get symptomatic. So you can prevent that now with the newer technology. Isn't that amazing? That was a great explanation. And you're right, since things like diet, sweets that we eat, or exercise, which has an insulin-like effect, can affect those glucose levels. It's really fascinating to keep an eye on them through the day. Before we wrap up, Pam, there are other treatment options for people whom lifestyle exercise have not worked. And we haven't mentioned it, but I want you to briefly touch for us on some medications and even bariatric surgery. There are many options now than there ever used to be. You know, before there were several of them, but there were really only one kind of oral tablet, the sulfonorias. And those basically did one or two things. They just kind of pounded on the pancreas to make more insulin. And we've learned over the years, that's not the only defect that can be happening. It might be just putting out insulin just fine, but it's the other tissues of the body. The body's not accepting the insulin. So now a lot of the medications, like some of the ones you see on television, those oral tablets, they help the body receive, you might say, and accept the insulin. So then the insulin can help lower the blood sugar. So there's many various classes of medicine than just one kind. And then that is very helpful to be able to kind of 
describe it like attack diabetes from all angles. So there are various target organs that might be at play. And so then these medications, and of course, the physician determines which ones those are, and they can tell that what the needs are based on what the blood sugar is doing. And so that's why there's many more options in the tablets oral tablets and even in the injectables, in insulin injectables, but also in the method of receiving them. So the injections used to only be vial and syringe, and now it's pens, which are very easy, where you just dial the dose and and inject it in the same way with the other medications that are injectable. There's inhalable insulin, which is aerosolized insulin that is inhaled much like an inhaler for a respiratory thing. That's a possibility. And again, it also is determined based on other comorbidities. If somebody has a respiratory illness, they would not then be able to take aerosolized insulin. Insulin pump therapy, that has come such a long way. Insulin pump therapy where it delivers insulin continuously. And then when somebody eats, they count their carbohydrates and they just put the carbohydrate amount in and then they're giving their insulin for that meal. So there's many things. Probably the most recent advances for insulin pump therapy have been where like if somebody had a low blood sugar and they were receiving insulin by an insulin pump, the insulin pump automatically stops. So it suspends and then it will automatically resume as the blood sugar recovers. So, so many new technologies have made it so much better. And then of course, I talked earlier about the sensors communicate with the insulin pumps. So you almost have like an artificial pancreas setup going on. So lots to say what we have a lot of options in many of the, the therapies now. So many options. As we wrap up, I'd like you to offer your best piece of advice to listeners that are wondering if some of the things that they may have noticed are diabetes or pre-diabetes, and if they have been diagnosed. What is your best advice on living that healthier lifestyle and the services that you offer at Memorial Hospital? I'd have to say truly, if you've had someone, you know, a provider that have said, you know, I think you've got a little, you know, higher than normal glucose, prediabetes, or actually have diabetes, the best advice right from the very, very beginning is to don't go it alone. It can be so overwhelming and you get a lot of, let's say, very well-meant advice from friends and family that might really actually be working well for them, but it might not work for you. So you really need to have your care be individualized for you, for your very own situation. And so that's where we come in. We can help you with all of that. And then, you know, you can live very well with diabetes or prediabetes, and we can help you prevent any of those complications, either acute or chronic. It's great information. Thank you so much, Pam, for helping us out today and explaining about this condition and that it really is manageable and there's possibly ways to prevent it in the first place by living that healthier lifestyle, exercising, eating right, and consulting with the specialists at Memorial Hospital. Thanks so much for listening. And that concludes this episode of Say Yes to Good Health with Memorial Hospital. For more health tips, you can always visit our website at mhtlc.org or you can get connected with one of our providers. Thank you so much, Pam, for joining us today. I'm Melanie Cole. Stay well, stay healthy.